Hi, hello, 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 hello. Kia ora, and welcome back. And those of you new folks, this is episode 70 of my podcast, Vintage Stories, uh, where I speak to my peers and mentors in wine growing, science, technology, but mostly speak to winemakers, viticulturists, and people who are very close to the wine industry. A couple MWs have been on, and we try to reach out, but mostly this is about telling the story and how you got into wine. And I think through that, we sort of discover a lot more about the people behind all this stuff that we drink, that we love to drink. So today on the podcast, I have Wilco Lamb, who was a winemaker at Dry River in Martinborough, New Zealand. I had it in my head to speak to Wilco for a long time, and we were finally able to make it happen. Uh, Dry River wines were among some of the first New Zealand wines that drew me to move from Philadelphia to the North Island of New Zealand. I mean, I was chasing that feeling that I smelled and tasted in the glass. Uh, it just blew me away. It was a group of Martinboro producers. Uh, I know Dry River was in that group. Martinboro Vineyards, Palliser, I believe, was there. and um, But certainly Dry River was one of them. And, you know, they were amongst the wines that had this purity and complexity that I just hadn't tasted before. And I'm so lucky to be able to get wowed on probably a weekly basis since I've moved to New Zealand 12 years ago, which I can't believe it'll be 12 years in January. Uh, but certainly the visuals and the colors, the vivid colors, man, the mountains, the amazing beaches and all the beauty this country has to offer, uh, you know, keeps me wowed on a daily basis. But I honestly taste at least one wine a week and many times from like friends and peers that I think, wow, this, that's great. This is really, really great wine. And I mean, shit, sometimes it's my wine. That sounds like a dick thing to say, but it's not because I think I'm like an amazing winemaker or anything. It's just sometimes I t taste my wines and smell my wines and I'm like, you know, in the past six months, particularly that I'm like, damn, I'm so lucky to be working with such interesting fruit such passionate growers, people that are really busting their ass to, to try to, uh, to make great wine. And that's why I always try to bring wine back to the growers I work with and stuff. But, um, you know, it's just, uh, so many times again, still in the last six months, I can think of so many instances where I just like that wine smells crazy, like something I've never had before. And, that makes me very, very happy to be able to say that after 12 years of being here and probably back in 2005 and 2006 when I was tasting these Martinboro wines for the first time. And admittedly, some of the uh, uh, Marlboro wines were in there. There may have been an Otago few, but certainly the Martinboro ones were the ones that stood out to me when I was working at my family spot, McCrossin's Tavern, back in Philadelphia. It propelled me into a life that I was that was just very different and into a life that many days I have to pinch myself or remind myself how fortunate I am to be making wine in New Zealand. Um, now, there's nothing worse than being let down by your heroes or, you know, by a person or situation that you highly regard. But fortunately, I had met Wilco Lamb a few times before, and we had a few mutual friends. So I knew he was very cool, and uh, I knew I was getting into and I knew it would be very easy to talk to him, but what I was pleasantly surprised with was his clarity, his sense of history, particularly about working at Dry River and where it sits in the greater New Zealand wine world. Uh, this was a very relaxed and natural conversation. 
but it was also really informative and I found Welko to be really poised and, and, but yet still humble in his role in guiding Dry River into the future. So here's my chat with Welko Lamb. Where's, where's Leithen? Ja, Leithen. It's in the east of Holland, near the German border. Uh, east of Holland. Yeah, I've been to Holland a long time ago. And uh, a bridge too far. You know the movie? Mm. Yeah, that's that's exactly in between I'm from. Did you grow up on a canal? <laughs> 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 yeah. And all we did was smoked out all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And wear uh, wooden shoes and wear wooden uh, shoes and have windmills grab around you. Potatoes out of the ground <laughs> and grow some tulips next to the dough. So where was it? Though? What kind of place was it? Though was it? Well, obviously it was flat. I don't have to. It was. Fl- it's. It's. Um. You know. It's right in where. Op- what is it? Operation Market Garden. So it's actually this massive battle zone area uh, that uh, that we were that our village is in. It's just right in the middle. So all of the both. American troops that were coming from down south and moving up north um, towards the front line where the Germans were just on the other side of the river from us. Um, you know, and, and it's, yeah, 70 years ago, it was just a major battle zone. How far is it from Maastricht? Oh, uh, about an hour and a half. Oh, okay. Cause it's in the middle. So there's Maastricht in the south. Yeah. And then you've got all the way on the top and we're right smack bang in the middle, same height as Amsterdam. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I've been to Amsterdam. I've been to Maastricht. I lived in Leuven, Belgium. Oh, yeah, nice. In 1997. For the beer? For a study in uh, European politics, working in the Euro- right. European Union. Right. Undergrad program. But, um, yeah, so I've been to Holland. It's beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah, I'd like to still think that. Yeah. I think Holland has become sort of the... Um, you know, the port for Europe. It's sort of becoming the highway to things like Belgium, France, and Germany, Denmark to a degree. And when, when we look at the west of Holland, it's just pretty much just one Ports. <laughs> ports and commercial centers right there up until sort of the middle of the country, and then things start to green up a bit. It yeah. seems like that's only going to get, or it already has started to increase because of Brexit. That there's just tons oh, of companies that have just said we're moving right over to Holland, and they they no matter what happens, they just said we're just we can't take the risk. We got to go now and totally. start start this rebuild and restaffing and all that over into Holland. So. Yeah, Amsterdam is feeling. I was in Amsterdam in June. They're, they're feeling it um, quite heavily in their house prices and how a lot of the um, multinationals are coming over to um, to re you know rehouse. Uh, the business and their and their staff. It's quite a, quite amazing. A few problems there. Yeah. Well, and nothing has really happened yet with Brexit. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's a changing world, but it sounds like no matter what, people are ready to to not take the risk and Correct. say, well, if you're going to dick around, uh, we're at least going to say we're committed to Europe, so we'll just go over to Holland. Yeah. 
nothing you know w whatever happens with brexit I, i do think the european union will come out maybe well hopefully stronger just with sort of the direction they're going i think um the european union might have sort of missed a few points of what they were created for in the first place um you know back in the 50s with belgium holland and uh, luxembourg and how that has progressed um So I, th I, th I think if they just rethink the democratic processes a little bit better, they'll, they'll come out pretty well and pretty strong. Yeah, well, that was what I, you know, the, if you're in England and the, the way the world's progressed, it seems very, uh, you know, it is problematic and there's a lot of issues that they have to deal with. Sure. But I worked for the Brits, a Labour Party member, and, you know, and they always had it at arm's distance. It wasn't really their thing. Mm. And they said we're not going to be in the euro, which they never did, mm. and it would it, it had almost had to get to this point. It'd be like, well, you're, are you really in or are you out? That's right. You know, and I think you're right that um, the way that it was established, it was you know first a steel and coal commission, and that's say right. let's not go to war anymore. Yes, uh, I mean that's really at the heart of it, and and then you know let's work together as you know which wars come out of economies, and so. Let's yeah. work together as economies and uh, and keep America and England, you know, at bay. Mm. Uh, they're obviously going to be heavily involved always, but uh, absolutely, and the rest of the world as well. So it's uh, uh, but going back to you know, you're a kid there. How long? When did you start traveling the world, or when did you get into wine? Is, did that happen yeah. in Holland, or um, it it. Well, it didn't happen. Well, well, you know, the love for wine was something that was created by by my parents, but not wine growing as such. Sure, sure. You know, tulip growing, maybe. Tulip growing, maybe. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, every 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 summer we would go like half of Holland. We would descend upon uh, France, um, and, <laughs> and for us that was the wine buying trip for my parents. Really. Oh, cool. Um, you know, the time before borders, where my dad would sort of purchase his year year supply and me and my sister would have to sit on all our wine with all our blankets on the top to cross the borders um yeah th that was just really to satisfy his cravings and we'd go and visit the wineries he wanted to visit and and explore you know new wineries and we'd always stay amongst vines so there's a little bit of a connection there from a farming family um on my mother's side Um, so I was always involved in, in, in weekends and in, in, in holidays and in, in farming, um, but but nothing really wine growing related yet. That was th that came you know in my twenties, I suppose, when I saw there was possibilities. Back mm. back when I was sort of eighteen, I had to choose a university, and um, I, I had wine growing, learning about wine growing in the back of my mind. That was only really possible in sort of France and Germany, uh, maybe Spain, but th there was no English program anywhere, so that that was just academically too hard, really. I get it. I didn't come from an area where we grew wine, really. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I was much later to the game, but yeah, I get it. It does seem like unattainable or something like what how do you do that become a winemaker grow wine like what you know if you're not in an area where you don't know somebody who does it it just seems so foreign you uh, know? absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um no it, it 
I, I did plenty of other things. Left Holland when I was 18 to go and study and travel. Um, and in the end, miraculously, I, I, you know, no, actually, I ended up in South America and met up with a Chilean winemaker. We did the Inca Trail there. And, and he actually told me that if I want to get involved in the wine industry and see what I was with making a shot, it would be in Australia. So, um, you know, from South America, I packed my bags and moved to Australia and knocked on Adelaide Roseworthy's door because for me that was the only university. Yeah. But was he saying that because of the schooling or because of like opportunity of jobs and growth Op- and all? Opportunity and where to, where sort of internationally opportunity would be and, and, and what is exciting and new. Um, and, you know, that was 20 years ago. And English speaking, I suppose. Too. English yeah. speaking, easy. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that was my choice, uh, go to Australia. And th- that was sort of successful. I couldn't get into university there. They, you know, Rosworthy was just too far-fetched and, and too, maybe too exclusive. So um, I, I set up to the uh, Barossa Valley um, and harvest season was had right you know, had just started really right there, and um, I just came with my suitcases, and just no- nothing made sense really. I, <laughs> I just had no idea. I was so green, um, so I just hung around for a few weeks, um, see what's going on, and I moved on, uh, and um, you know, did some science papers and degrees. Uh, can you come? Yeah, yeah, right? sure. Yeah. No, that's not a problem. Is Hi, Sarah. how are you? <laughs> <laughs> so we're just having this chat. We're having it. Let's see what's going on. We're having a chat. Yeah, you can you can eavesdrop. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. No major secrets here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, from from there, um, uh, I I just travelled a bit more in Australia. I did some science papers at Melbourne University, but then they found out that I wasn't allowed to study there because I didn't have a student visa, so they kicked me out. Um, <laughs> and um, my last opportunity really was New Zealand because I was sort of right next door, mm. and s- some old connections helped me get into Lincoln University so oh you went to Lincoln okay yeah yeah I, fe- yeah. I ended up doing a postgrad at Lincoln yeah okay so what did you what was your undergrad studying um uh, I did I did a few things I did hospitality management in Amsterdam and then I did uh, like an international management studies in um in Aberdeen in Scotland at oh, Scotland yeah. Scotland yeah oh, yeah <laughs> Well, both of those things would probably help you to this day, I would think. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, everything helps, uh, I suppose. Um, you know, it, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It applies in some way. Somewhere in the yeah. back of the head. Even my uh, you know, politi- political science and philosophy might apply in some way. I'd love to do studies like that. Yeah, yeah. Right? I was actually thinking about it recently. Like, oh, man, I would love to go back and just study something that has nothing to do with wine really correct like philosophy or something and just that start taking some papers you know I, I, i've been thinking exactly that you know just all the science-based thinking then there's all that sort of management style of thinking and i thought well there's got to be a different approach to the world and that you know philosophy is i think one of those studies or things like history it's just yeah. a total different bigger picture stuff bigger picture yeah stuff. longer term type of stuff yeah yeah yeah, I think my maybe it's something about our winemaking brains that Could sits in the in the long term, you know. Too um, many glasses of wine and thinking. Yeah, hey? absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, certainly, Dry River makes some uh, some meditative wines. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, wines for meditation, serious wines. Um, yeah. And as I said on the way in, it's my first time here. I've certainly drank plenty of the wines over the years and had some some old ones and some new ones and. Mm. Um, 
but in full disclosure, it is one of the wines that made me move to New Zealand. Martinborough Pinot was why I moved to New Zealand, and wow. and Dry River was probably one of the three or four that I tasted that I was like, "What the hell is this stuff?" You know, yeah. and just blew me away. So um, it's pretty cool to finally be here. You know, I mean, I I've well, yeah. been driven by a million times. I actually know which driveway it was. Um, I knew roughly where you guys were at. So how long have you been here? At Dry River, when did you start here? Uh, I started here uh, at the end of 2009. Okay. Originally, really in the vineyards, an assistant winemaker, mm-hmm. and then um, slowly got some opportunities to, to grow into winemaker uh, role, take on the overseeing the, the viticulture part as well, because sort of that's really been my background prior to Dry River is wine growing. And then, um, um, you know, with Anne McKenzie, who was here. Um, helping out in some transition with Neil yep. uh, leaving or fully retiring since 2015, um, sort of looking after the welfare of the business as well for the owner. Um, well, we'll get back to that in a second. Where were you in between? So when, when were you at um, uh, in school in the South? Oh, in, uh, in Lincoln. Lincoln. I finished in 2003. And I, I came, same as you, I came, you know, Martin Rapino was for me that there was only one choice um in new zealand and, and that was coming here i happen to have a friend working in the region and he said you know forget about everything else just come come to martinborough mm. and um i started working for martinborough vineyards uh, just again in the in, in in the vineyards did my um vintage there and then i got some other opportunities in, in terms of looking after vineyards for people alana stayed and um did that for a few years and moved on overseas, came back. Uh, but all of it was focused on wine growing, so that the viticulture part. Sure. I just wanted to do the waxing in and waxing out before moving on, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Fair I, enough. I've done my time as well. Yes. Leaf, yeah. leaf plucking and, uh, <laughs> yeah, crawling around the vines, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, just a, a cr- thought just crossed my mind about Martinborough that I want before I forget about it, uh, or that I wanted to address is uh, you're obviously working for you know a historic site here. You must know Martinborough really well if you've been here that long. You know mm-hmm. it better than me. I know you know a lot, you know a decent amount, but uh, you know all the sites probably across many different wineries and everything. Uh, and having a recent conversation with uh, I won't disclose with who, but uh, looking for sites and there's not much left is there but then i, I thought oh. there wasn't but then i talked i was at uh, luna estate the first time i ever did a tasting there and they have you know vineyards that seem like they're kilometers away that is still considered martinborough it's down dry river road actually right yes so is that just what's between here and there and is there any sites left or is there any properties really i mean yeah to be developed um I, I think there's still pl- plenty to to be developed and, and some potential. However, I do think that th- the biggest problem I think Martinborough has is its um, denomination of, of uh, you know, and a demarcation of the area of what is allowed to be Martinborough wine. Um, you know, that includes Timuna Road, a little bit south of town, um, but, but then it, it sort of stops pretty quick. Um, where there is surrounding Martinborough just beautiful soils, beautiful um, areas that I think um, would be f- fantastic for wine growing. 
uh, that can be explored. But the biggest problem is is that it wouldn't require, have the name. It won't have that. But why is that that land south of here, which doesn't seem like it's actually in town, or it seems like there'd be sites that aren't in that denomination that are just slightly in a different direction that wouldn't be considered Martinborough and could be just as good as soils. And like you said, that, that was the confusing bit of me was like, I, I, had, I think I had known those vineyards were there and then I was sort of reminded when I yeah. was at Luna and I went, oh, that's called Martinborough as well? Well, there's, there's sort of maybe a little bit of confusion, like quite early days, I mean, it might have been the late 80s or mid 80s, there was a movement um, to demarcate the Martinborough Terrace which was really sort of this part that we're on here between the road there that is New York Street and then the river there, um, the, uh, the Purawatanga River, that was supposed up toward, towards Palisade and then Tikaranga just further down the road. Now that was supposed to be the Martinborough Terrace. But then, um, you know, some other developments happened just outside that and um, with on, on similar soils and fantastic wines coming from there. So the Madame Terrace denomination is sort of, it's never been an official, well, I, it might be actually an official one, I'm not sure, but not many people actually use that anymore, the Martinborough Terrace. Yeah, no, so it's I more know. now Martinborough. Yep. And yeah, then you can go a little bit further down south to Dry River Road, a little bit past uh, there too, uh, that, um, that, that is still considered Martinborough, but that stops, I don't know how many kilometers south of town that is, but um, yeah, th things start to change qu quite dramatically then. I think I'm going to make a safe prediction that it's going to be an issue moving yep. forward because, um, you know, the wines are obviously excellent quality. Mm. And people are, regardless of whether they get that Martinboro name or not, they're going to they're going to develop sites in the area. That's right. Uh, the, the, the hardest thing is is when when you when this when the region is too small, bigger investment is sort of it's it's. Um, discouraged really and that we see Timuna Road is uh, is now being used as a as the next sort of frontier by Craigie Range quite well um, and and they're, they're doing really well on, on on that part but there's not much after that so any big investment is sort of quite hard to sort of where we're going to go with this really yeah well and, and also it's confusing because I, my gut tells me and especially after what you just said that there's I almost consider Timuna Road different so different than the oh, terraces yeah. and we we know it is it's cooler and all that that i think there's probably sites within an eye shot of where we're at right now mm. that wouldn't be considered martinborough but they'd be more martinborough than tamuna road probably yeah and so i don't know it's just something yeah, i mean you know we can come back and listen to this uh, podcast uh, a few years from now and see if yeah we're hopefully right. yeah, there's yeah. a few pioneers that have taken the gamble um to, to explore beyond because it's, it's, I, it's I think phenomenal. so I, I think uh from what is going on in the world with recognition of new zealand pinot noir mm. i think and and particularly martinborough pinot noir and this region's weather and this region's soil and even just wairarapa which is fantastic i mean i just had some great ones over at schubert a absolutely. couple of weeks ago you know i mean there's there's absolutely no knock in that wine that was no, beautiful wine no so it. it just didn't say martinborough on the front label you know but yep. it was it was right there and uh i think that there's either there might be a fight for it or there might just be people say oh screw it like we're just gonna plant over here anyway because it's it's meant great spot for pinot you know correct so uh it's be interesting to watch and I'm certainly keeping an eye on 
fruit out there and things yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Um, getting back to dry river though, you guys have multiple sites you deal with here. Uh, and keep in mind, this is a, we're not on film now, so don't point out the window anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one can see. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've got three sites. So here where we're sitting is the original, uh, at dry river estate that was planted first in 1979. Um, in 1992, oh no, actually, sorry, the Krakul Vineyard, which we used to share uh, or co-farm with Atarangi, um, was the Krakul block that was planted sort of early, early to mid 80s. Um, a little Where is bit, that? It's a, it's a just down the road. Krakul oh, uh, yeah, okay. Vineyard. Um, it's it's two, literally 200 meters um, okay. um, uh, down the road from us, and um, that's got a, a variety of of uh, mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, a little bit of Riesling in there. And then adjacent to that is our Lovet Vineyard, um, and that is uh, more Pinot Noir, Syrah, and Aguirre now. So, uh, so yeah, three vineyard sites that we have a total of um, just about 11 and a half to 12 hectares that we obviously farm ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you bring in fruit otherwise as well? No. Just keep that premium, small yeah. production? That's right. We, we're quite... We've got our ideas on how we want to farm, um, and uh, we'd like to keep, <laughs> we're control freaks, you know, we'd like to keep control of the quality of the fruit and the parameters of, of what we expect from the fruit. So we don't uh, purchase any fruit in from other vineyards uh, that we've got, you know, no or little control over, uh, over how it's maybe even farmed in the past, but also I think it, it just takes a while uh, before your farming style starts to show in that wine and that those vines uh, adapt to what we're after. So at the moment, we, we'd like to keep it to what, what you have. Yeah, what yeah. we have. Yeah. And uh, obviously keep up with your markets and things like that. But that that's right. Yeah. yeah. But Dry Rivers, around, I mean, they're in a few different markets, so little bits here and there. Little bits here and there. Majority is local, is domestic, uh, New Zealand. Um, yeah. Obviously, Australia is a, is a big an important market for us as well. We can almost consider that as a local market because it's, it's right there. Um, uh, so that'll be about 60%, 65% of our market and the rest goes further afield, really. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you mess around with, uh, you said Gewurz, Chardonnay. Yeah. What else? We have Riesling. Riesling, that's right. Uh, yeah, of course, Pinot Riesling. Green. So actually, a two flagship no, two wines that we consider our flagship wines uh, historically, but also I think style, stylistically, uh, are Pinot Green, Gewürztraminer. Those the were the Pinot two Green, first yeah, course, uh, varieties yeah. that we yeah. planted. Yeah. It was uh, it was only five years later that uh, the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay were planted here. Uh, but yeah, originally Neil and Dawn, who planted the vineyard, were after um, Alsace style. Alsace, okay. Yeah. We actually had Sauvignon Blanc uh, planted here as well, but yeah, we didn't see a future for that, so we we, we removed that back in 2006. Yep. Um, getting back to Dr. Neil, that must it was how was that when he first came in? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure once you get close to the situation, it's different. But I would think, you know, young budding viticulturist, winemaker, and you're dealing with kind of a, a bit of a legend there and the guy who, uh, you know, from what I know, really changed the game because, you know, mm -hmm. the reputation, I don't know the guy, I've met him, I think, once at Tiawa years ago, mm -hmm. but 
it seemed to me that he sort of changed the game. He was the first real um, – he took more of a scientific approach and probably cleaner winemaking and things like that, and the quality just seemed to go up from there. I mean, I've spoken to Clive at um, at Atarangi about it a bit, yeah. and he just said, you know, we were kind of all coming – you know, doing this little race together yeah. uh, around the same time. And the quality just kind of kept bumping up and bumping up. And by the time I would taste this stuff in, uh, in the U S in the early 2000s, sort of mid 2000s, that's when I said, man, you know, this stuff is clearly really well made. I didn't know that much about winemaking, but I knew this was high quality and, yeah. uh, and then extremely expressive and very, you know, New Zealand. And it just had all these qualities about it, uh, that, you know, I just, just blew me away, but, um, diving deeper into it, you know, you see that, you know, Neil had his own approach to things yeah. and, um, and I'll ask about the winemaking in a second, but just as far as you walking into that situation, yeah. was it intimidating or was it like, what the heck's going on? Or? Oh, it was uh, very intimidating. Um, f- from a, definitely from a winemaking perspective, from a, from a wine growing perspective, um, which I was very, very comfortable with and, um, uh, doing things in the vineyard that, that I was naturally going towards anyway. I was very comfortable with that. Um, but, but yeah, the ideas in the winery, it, it might have been a blessing that I hadn't a, a very strong winemaking background, so I was probably um, easier to, um, get to a take on a few ideas uh, that, that made sense. Um, oh, oh, you know, over the years that obviously has changed but um yeah uh, very very particular get a fresh apple take it off the tree is yeah. what they say right that's right yeah that's so right. you were you were uh willing to you were a bit malleable at that time when i, you I was definitely more yeah. malleable and yeah. um but but i think i'm still malleable really as well i, I think that's yeah, the most important yeah. thing in the wine game is, yeah. is, is is staying dynamic and and keep things with an open mind and certainly things have changed uh from when you know the 80s and 90s when neil was doing things i've, I've always heard uh from uh well i'll just say mutual friends that back in the day you know it was he made great wine he sent out a letter for the mailing list come back all the wine sold you yeah. know basically maybe he had his australian distributor or something that was helping out too but obviously that doesn't work anymore you know and and it's, it was literally a mail list uh, yeah. from what i understand that was a big dry river following and probably still is yeah i'm sure you guys still have a strong wine club and stuff we, we still have a strong wine club but things are absolutely different in, in the beginning people who signed up to that mail list we just sent whatever wine there was and and that was that was it really mm. um so no 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 choice whatsoever about what you could get and what you couldn't get uh it, yeah times have definitely changed there um you know a there's more wineries a the, um, and and the New Zealand wine industry, there is more than Atarangi uh, Drive. There's so many good producers around now, and they still keep coming up, people who really understand what they're doing, what they want to achieve, mm. how they want to achieve that, um, a- and how they can um, bring that product to the market. So I think uh, the, the, the wine industry has, has definitely become more professional in that respect in the last sort of you know 20 30 years it's mm. a huge growth so yeah you know we've, we've gone with that hopefully and well. and on the the winemaking side not you know you don't have to give away any trade secrets <laughs> or anything but uh you know i 
again, this is all sort of hearsay, but I, you know, I hear things like, oh, they would acidify a barrel and there's super like clean, reductive style winemaking and all that. And, um, I don't know whether I can tell that with the wines. I know they're, you know, I haven't had Mm. any faulty dry river wines or anything. I think they're quite expressive and, and solid wines. So that's, I don't really know a personal opinion about whether Mm. I could say, Oh, it was made this way or anything like that. Mm. But, um, I know that, yeah, again, it was probably more in the, in the past or with, with Neil, maybe there was this certain ethos or way to do things and how how much has that evolved under you and how much did you take that on or? Well, funny, you know, I think they've evolved tremendously under, under Neil's own influence as well, where in the beginning, uh, he's done all sorts of experiments um, in the first, I think in the first maybe even 10 years of, uh, or, or, yeah, up to 10 years of winemaking, the, the community shared a basket press together. Um, <laughs> so uh, b- before we bought a uh, Wilmer's bladder press here uh, in the mid or early mid, no, mid-90s, I think. So yeah, up until that point, it was just a yeah. real simple, and that, that um, press was made by a local engineer as well, and they just went around. Um, it was natural ferments, there was no filtration. They've done everything that they thought would bring a great quality wine. Um, th- then problems arise because uh, probably sort of, um, you know, labs weren't co- hadn't caught up that much yet with um, bacterial problems. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, w- we had a Brettanomyces skier in the late 90s, and that really got Neil thinking as well. It's like, well, there's, there's obviously... Uh, we, we've got to put some sort of parameters in and barriers sure. in um, uh, sort of how, how we deal with that. So, so, so he's come back. You know, he went the other way from wild ferments, no filtration, all sort of quite standoff to a bit more hands-on uh, uh, winemaking. Um, and then there is uh, the takeover by um, the Robertson family in the early 2000s w- when Neil had to start thinking about making wine for somebody else obviously there was a identity there dry river wines but but now that risk factor sure he had to really think about because it's somebody else's sort of business now so uh, he he would make sure that uh, the wines would come out in a, in 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 a, in a proper way or in a, in a way that was less risk yeah. management um and then New generation winemaker takes over, like us. Uh, uh, that's you know, 2011 when Neil retired. It was Ant McKenzie and myself. But Ant McKenzie very experienced, and really start looking and reassessing winemaking procedures, and um, you know, the, coming from a background where we feel comfortable and what we feel feel good with and how we want to present wine. So we go probably more towards um, h- how Neil was making wine b- back in the early 90s, late 80s. Um, wild ferments, n- you know, no filtration, that sort of stuff, um, which I think now is, is fairly common in, in the wine industry, is, is letting wines maybe be more. Yeah, well, it sounds like a s- bit of a story of a lot of wineries, actually, when you really think about it. And mm. uh, I think we're, you know, I was sort of just still learning in 2011, but you could see the trend sort of start to go back and that, that could have been with you know new oak and different yeah. things like that or all starting to swing back and and uh but it has been at the luxury of saying well we could do a wild ferment we could do that but you know the lab down the road could really help you say are we 
what is actually going on in right. there and uh and you have that confidence to be like no no we're good we're good right. and those of course years and years of experience to to uh you know just build confidence yep. you know and uh and then see the wines develop and things like that and hygiene there's all kinds oh, of I new see, machinery yeah. and For techniques sure. and everything so you know you're sort of building on a, a lot of different things but it, it yeah. is funny how you you turn back a little bit and i think that that sort of struggle is always the struggle is pull back and forth you know it's just reading i, I can't believe how many articles there are on natural wines these days and the mm. wine writers love to it's a contentious subject and they love to write about it and uh, that's right but here we're all in that w w none of the producers probably in even new zealand is, is you know the sizes are just not big enough to be in 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 a really low end winemaking where you need so much intervention yeah where wine, you know that at one point what are you going to question that one what wine is really um a, a lot of the producers um i think think about winemaking so much and, and and wine quality that it's so far removed from from that bulk wine making that, that we're already sitting sort of a, a, in a few levels above that but just to go back, really, you know, we're touching on winemaking, but um, as, as you can see, the the facility here is, is, is pretty rudimentary for, for us. We like to keep things really simple here. But like, like I think the most important place for wine and its expression is really is the vineyard. For us, that is the biggest budget of the, mm. of, 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 of the company, really. That's where so much resources are invested in and, and mostly staff resources that um you know for us we don't have second tier labels um everything we grow on our 12 hectares needs to be able to make it to make it make the cut to yeah. become joyful wine and, and that definitely is the challenge yeah, yeah it would be <laughs> so because especially with sort of low you know lower volumes um expectations i think as well from the market definitely that, that, that's that's pressure for us yeah yeah so what uh, what uh what happens in a real challenging year you know it's uh it's got to be it's got to be tough man you know? well well the toughest thing it, it's actually really simple it's re very black and white it's, there's no compromise but yeah in the back of your mind the economics of running a wine business so will uh, be start to play won't pick or pick less or pick around pick it. less yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely um, make, make less you know what the most important part is is um is protect what we can protect in terms of the brand really yeah. um when a wine goes out that has to represent dry river so uh it's very simple and that's the conversations we have with our owner uh most of the time really that's uh it's good to know or it's good to have that you know at least somebody understand that that's what what uh dry river is about yeah you know? so that's uh yeah because i'm certainly not in that position you know not that i have any secondary labels or anything but, mm. you know where uh we're i deal mostly with growers and things but yeah certainly it's it's not i don't own the land so mm. if i say hey we're gonna pick around it and just get this or i'm you know i've only once ever said i'm just not picking it yeah uh, back in 2011 um and it needed to not be picking <laughs> it turned over to custard overnight basically um but it is good to have that uh ownership to understand that we want to keep a real high level yeah. quality and everything so because that 
that doesn't always happen, you know. Yeah, there's two bottom lines for me is running an economically sound business and keeping driver brand, um, you know, alive and, and, and meet expectations. Mm. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, so you guys don't have a tasting room, right? No. Nope. Yeah. No, so uh, uh, you do quite a bit of travel to with your distributors and stuff as uh, well? or Well, th- no, not really. Uh, uh, I, I, I do travel, for yeah. sure. I, I try to m- m- visit international markets at least once every 24 months sometimes a bit uh, it takes a bit longer um really because the international markets i do um sarah here helps me uh, together with sam who's in the cellar but sarah mostly in the domestic market yeah um so um uh, so, so there's really only the two of us um and beyond that i've got to look after winery vineyard their staff there's also there's so much sure yeah, i gotta yeah. keep keep an eye on so there's just physically not enough time also because i, I want to spend a bit of time with my family sure <laughs> ideally um uh so so yeah we try to keep this sort of marketing budget fairly tight um it's also the focus of our marketing bo- budget is more towards our direct uh private customers yeah. you know a large chunk of our sales is direct and we want to honor the people who've been following us and who are with us uh, sometimes for 30 plus years already or you know generations well, some people pass on the uh, also you're never going to get more for a bottle of wine than when you just sell it directly to somebody so that's right you know correct and um you know those followers hopefully we can sort of have them for life with us or um you know for, for as long as we can and and that's that's a, a big focus for us and going back to the family life, I suppose the one blessing I love, I know, and it's probably even more so in Hawks Bay or in Martinborough than it is in Hawks Bay, but it's probably very similar is that it's pretty easy to shut it down here and, and relax with the family and it can be quite pretty quiet around here. So yes. you know, it's not like uh, you're living in some action packed big city, you know, and so when the no. day's over, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to just uh, relax a bit, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, it is f- f- absolutely life in the countryside in New Zealand is, is, is pretty, can be pretty relaxing and, and, and very low profile. Um, you know, the, the, there's, I think the, the knife cuts on two sides. We live on site here. So my kids, th- they see the winery and the vineyard as an extension of their playground. Um, but for me, I have to see work as an extension of my life, really. Yeah, totally. So, um, uh, yeah, the first few years, that, that, that was really hard. In in the more difficult, challenging seasons, that still is really hard because the vineyard's right there. You yeah. live in the vineyard, too. So it's um, Yeah, and know. I have my office upstairs. And, yeah. you know, we work mostly from home, so it just never leaves. You know? it, it never really leaves. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. But, I, I, again, I do prefer the lifestyle as far as, you know, I don't think I could do it another way, you know. No, it's, Especially it's a whole different yeah. connection, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and being in the being in the vineyard, being in the winery, and just that being just always at arms like the way, yeah, you know, and being able to walk right into it and out of it, and yeah, wake up in the morning and you're looking out, and even if it's not your vineyard, you're looking at, you're like thinking, oh, what's the weather gonna do, and you know, you're constantly. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, taking ownership of something, um, you know, c- can be quite as obsessive as as, as ha- being an owner. Um, 
and and with our ownership being in New York, um, they're involved, but but not on the day-to-day management. And yeah, then. then but it's good to get that outside, um, you know, opinions. And and I love to go travel. I do quite a bit of travel for mm. you know, and I, and I think it's so. I mean, we started off talking about that. That uh, you know how dynamic the wine world is now. Yeah. And it's so great to get that perspective. Not you know, not only internationally, even just you know to other wine regions in New Zealand. Yeah, and no, I, I consider it really cool to be able to go back and forth between Hawks Bay and Martinborough and yep. see the different things. You know, nobody wants to hear about Pinot Noir and Hawks Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Tomato just pulled Trita. out. So yeah, yeah. That's what I, I, I say. I always whisper. I go, you know, I moved to New Zealand because of Pinot, not because of, I never had a Hawks Bay wine until I moved here. Um, but you know, it's so it changes quick. It changes, and sometimes you need that big picture stuff to go. You know, actually, you could you know, you're doing good or, you know, yeah. you could change this thing and, and that. So, um, no, that's, that's, that's really cool. Mm. Um, yeah. So we did touch a little bit, uh, uh this sort of a, a applies to that dine. What would you say? Dynamism, dy- dynamic, uh, ideas that, uh, this, this big conference coming up in about a year. Well, about, well, it's 14 months away. Really. Yeah, if you think about it yeah, that way, it's, it's coming, coming quick, coming pretty quick. So, um, uh, as I'm sure you were a big part of it in the past, right? You last, the last one were you a part of as well? Yeah. I, I, no, well, I think I'm pretty sure actually we've been part of all of them since inception. But you personally, as far as helping organize it and stuff? Oh, no, I wasn't involved last time. No, okay. no, well, no. Uh, well, then no. You, you've got your work cut out for you because <laughs> yeah. I've talked to a few uh, wine writers and, uh, you know, people like Mike Benny and Hawk Waka Waka and people like that are said, yeah. this is absolutely the benchmark conference that they've ever been to and, mm. and uh so uh and it should be you know venue change coming up this year so that's, that's a new venue good. change that's right and I th- and i think you know the the board with helen masters and uh, penelope mesh and rachel fletcher they they are they are very ambitious to every time sort of um are doing themselves are <laughs> doing themselves and, yeah. and, and raise the bar and um uh, you know, and and I think that they will, and and it it will, and that Christchurch is going to perform um, pr- pretty well in the way that they're involved with the conference already, and their willingness to show the wine community of the world w- w- what Christchurch has is, is, is come out of. I think it's all in great. The last ten years, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really positive. Yeah, I think it'll be. Uh, um for many reasons, uh, you know, outside of that sort of fighting back of Christchurch that they, like you said, the mm. last 10 years that, you know, you're really close to a great wine region. Hopefully the weather's better than it was Wellington <laughs> yeah. last year. Last, yeah, last year was not so good, but the year before yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Crikey. That's really funny. Um, yeah. But uh, no, and then obviously a little closer to Otago and things like that. So yeah. uh, it should be, should be interesting. Um, so no... And sort of nothing to divulge at this stage. No big surprises. No big. Uh, um. uh, I think at the moment we're keeping our cards fairly close to a chest. Uh, there will be some some good announcements coming in the, in the next few weeks. I think um, it's February that the um, general admission goes. Um, you know, it's, it's it's open that people can can buy tickets. Um, but yeah, we're now in the in, in the st- final stages of 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 getting. Uh, some good names in and, and um, 
some star not stars as in you know the, um, world celebrities but but wine stars that uh, that would definitely arouse yeah I'm, i mean i might thinking. mention this and i do an intro and outro to this i might mention it again as far as the caliber of wine people that yeah. attend this thing but you know we had the likes of Chances robinson and and uh you know some of the biggest names in wine uh, yeah. around the world and met so many you know mws and ms's and things like that um but it has to be new zealand wine growers sort of biggest event right for uh it, yeah it will it will uh, definitely i sauvignon blanc uh, conference that that's obviously a big one for them but this this um is i i, I couldn't really comment i might be lying but I, i'm yeah. guessing this is a bigger event than that yeah, yeah i think it does because it involves quite a bit of producers and and you're talking about our premium red and everything like that so that's right and it's not one region where Mal where Sauvignon Blanc is very much focused on Marlborough sure uh, surely there's other regions no doubt but this this really is showcasing uh not just uh, the region probably very much uh, Pinot but but not to forget really New Zealand as well um the underlying themes of new of, of Pinot 21 that really we think represents New Zealand with Kaitiaki Tanga, um, uh, Turanga Waiwai, and... Uh, well, explain it? that. People listening overseas, explain those two. Yeah, so, so it, with the last conference, why that m- might have resonated so well with people is, is, is that approach to um, uh, uh, um, what we call sort of the place we stand and and it was it was the sort of that, that maori take probably on on the place we stand and how we look at the land and how the land has looked at at us or how how the land has provided us and how we've responded to that i, th- I think that was a really good sort of deeper meaning that they wanted to explore with the conference um and now we sort of want to build on that and 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 take some other concepts um uh, f- from maori culture uh I- into this that we want to expose people to and, and 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 make people aware of of what we are thinking of as as producers as farmers in the agricultural sector is is looking after land so through katiakitanga and not just land but also after communities how communities are formed or how in this case wine industry has embedded itself in society um so, so those are the three uh fanalangatanga uh, kaitiakitanga and um tarangawaiwai as the three underlying themes for the conference to explore and and, and not just for the smaller producers like ourselves how we can incorporate that in our thinking and in our business but also for new zealand wine growers and for the larger uh, uh, wine growers to really think you know h- how can we take our wine to the to the world um and showing what terroir means for New Zealand so I, I think those are sort of uh, you know the philosophical ideas and the, and, and the underlying themes that, that can be setting ourselves apart quite well from uh, competitors in competing countries uh, whether it's for supermarket space or for um, uh, you know Michelin star, star restaurant star, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, wine lists yeah 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 oh that's that's uh, exciting I'm looking forward to it because I was certainly very impressed and had a lot of fun and, and, yeah, learned, yeah. and learned a lot at the last conference. So I'm excited to be a part of the 2021 and the, mm. the lead up to it should be fun. We still got to get through uh, 2020 vintage though first, man. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, let's sit that one out first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Um, well, cool, man. We'll leave it to there, and uh, we'll obviously keep keep in touch. And uh, thanks for letting me swing by and have a chat with you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, we'll have to get a photo. Maybe Sarah can help us with that. All right. <laughs> thanks, buddy. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Wilco. What a great dude. We spoke a bit about the Pinot 2021 conference at the end there. I think I'd mentioned I was at the 20 Pinot 17, what they call it, Pinot 2017 conference or Pinot 17. Phenomenal. If you have any opportunity or reason to attend this, you absolutely should. As we mentioned in our chat, it is the benchmark for wine conferences. Um, super educational impressively fun and um i love where uh, wilco said you know the direction of the conference is headed that sounds really cool and i look forward to that i'm sure they're going to have some big announcements and big names coming to it they always do uh, as for me i'm now going on a long break to the northern hemisphere uh, i do plan to check in with a couple sort of podcast short stories uh, i'm going to experiment with something this will be mostly around my wine, uh, but I will post it on here because there will be, it'll be kind of more of a story type of thing, uh, a little change of pace that I want to try out. Uh, I will be back with a full series in the winter. We're talking to people about that now, and it's going to be pretty interesting. It sounds like it's all going through. So I did find my theme. I think I mentioned in the previous episode, I wasn't sure where this thing was heading, but I did find uh, some I was actually approached, so that's pretty cool. So uh, you can keep up with us in the meantime at DB Vintage Stories on Instagram, and I'm at Decibel Dan on Twitter and at Decibel Wines on Instagram and Facebook. I do have some events and tastings coming up in the USA in December and January. The first at Sickles Market in Red Bank, New Jersey on December 20th and probably somewhere New Year's Eve in South Jersey. And then there'll be some tastings and wine dinners. I don't even know. They got me running all through America in January and early February. So hope to run into some you Americans when I'm up there. And I mean, guys, tis the season. Bust out those great wines, drink them with friends. And I'll talk to you guys in 2020. Cheers.